so excited to hear that this is a, a church that represents 65 nations. That's a picture of heaven, isn't it? Every nation, every color, creed, and language together. Uh, 65 nations, that's so good. And, uh, you know, I did, a little bit of, I did a little bit of digging, I did a little bit of finding out, and I found out that there was a consultancy firm, okay, there's a consultancy firm, they're called Search Laboratory, and they conducted a piece of research to discover the most common questions that uh, continental Europeans ask Google about the UK, okay, so the, the, the top Google searches in terms of questions, the most important questions that each country had about the UK, and some of them, some of the top search results were pretty sensible, like the, the top question asked in Sweden was, was, why has England got two flags, all right, I'm sure you agree, pretty, pretty reasonable, the, the Danish asked, well, why do English judges wear wigs, that was their top question, and it's a fairly sensible question, I'm sure you'll agree, others though, not so much. For example, the Irish. Any Irish in the house this morning? Two of them. I don't know if you ever put this into Google, but apparently the top Irish search about the UK was this. What do Scottish people look like? <laughs> For the Italians, though. The Italians. Oh, there's some Italians here. The top Google search. You're not going to cheer when I tell you this. Was, why are the British dirty? <laughs> And my friends, there is a theme. There is a theme. Because the top du Dutch question was, why are the British so ugly? <laughs> the top German search was, why are the British so stupid? <laughs> but my favourite one of all is that the Portuguese, their most important question about the UK was this, why are the English crybabies? <laughs> Brilliant. Good to know we're thought of well by our continental uh, cousins, isn't it, Pastor Mark? Uh, so now that I've shown a little bit of uh, division in the house this morning, what I wanted to do, <laughs> what I wanted to do, was start by asking you a little bit of a question, if that's okay. If those were the most important questions they had about the UK, what is the most important question that you have ever been asked? What's the most important question that you've ever been asked? If you would, cast your mind back for me over the course of your life. What are those questions that became like forks in the road of your life? Do you want the job? Have you ever considered retraining? Will you take that loan? Will you go out with me? Will you marry me? Or when Netflix asked you, are you still watching what, what are those questions that changed the course of your life? I guess it's fair to say that some questions are powerful enough to alter our destination, aren't they? Who we spend our lives with, where we live even, and what we do with our days. These are important questions. But what if I told you that there is a question that every single one of us must answer that is more important than any of those questions. In fact, it is the single most important question that you will ever be asked. What if I told you that this is a question that will not only impact your present, it will also change your future and even alter your past? What if I told you that there was a question that is so important that the way that you answer this question will have a more significant, life-altering, destiny-defining impact on your life than any other answer that you will ever give. Would you like to know what that question is this morning, BCC? I knew that you would. Jesus had taken his disciples a couple of days' walk away from the areas and regions that they, that they usually spent their time. 
And it was there that he asked them the most important question ever. But first, he asked them another question. He asked them this. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? He was talking about himself. What are the people out there saying about me? What's the word on the street? And they answered in this way. They replied that some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. They said to them, Jesus, they think you're like one of those crazy old prophets, you know, the ones who live in the desert and, and, and eat locusts and speak boldly to kings and challenge prophets of other gods, you know, the troublemakers. That's what they think you are, Jesus. You're a, you're a troublemaker. <laughs> and then he asks it, Jesus. He asks the most important question ever. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? And there it is. Who do you say I am? Hopefully it will appear on the screen. (laughs) The most important question ever. Why is this the most important question ever? Let me tell you why this is the most important question ever. Because if Jesus really was who he said he was, then the answer that we give to this question, who do you say I am, will impact everything that we do. It will transform how we manage our money. It will impact how we treat our children and how we love our spouse. It will change how we apply ourselves in our schools, universities, and our workplaces. It will change how we, how we treat our bodies how we impact our environment, even how we prioritize our time, the things that we value and the things that we don't. In fact, our answer to this question will change the very foundation upon which we build our personal identity and everything will look different. Everything will look different. But even more than that, church, if Jesus really was who he claimed to be, then the answer that you give to this question will not only transform your present reality, it will alter your eternal destiny. And because this question will not only alter your uh, present reality, it will transform your future destiny. That is why this is the most important question ever. Because you see, Jesus said this of himself. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And nobody comes to the Father. Nobody experiences eternal life. Nobody gets to participate in heaven except through me. It will transform your eternal destiny. And so, because this is the most significant life-changing question that you will ever answer, we're going to give it some really robust thought together this morning. Is that okay, BCC? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it has uh, transformed the lives of many of the people in this room. And Lord, I pray that amongst the busyness and the joys and the trials of life today, you would help us to be attentive to your voice, Lord Jesus, and to the things that you want to say to us this morning by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus, who do you say I am? Well, I guess before we answer that question, we, we, need, to, we need to go back a couple of steps and, and first ask this question, which is, did Jesus even exist? Did Jesus even exist? And maybe for you that's settled. But there was a recent survey, in fact, it was conducted just last year in this very country by Hope Together and Comres. And it discovered that 39% of people in our nation actually think that Jesus is a mythical figure rather than an actual person who existed in history. 
And this was particularly true for people who were under the age of 35, who were 25% more likely to think that Jesus didn't actually exist than those who were 36 and above. So it's a relevant question. So which is it? Is Jesus a real historical figure or a mythical figure like King Arthur or Robin Hood? Well, what does the evidence say? What does the evidence say? Now, to grapple with this, and this is a little bit academic, but go with me because you're going to like it and it's important. We need to understand that the historical reliability and trustworthiness of any ancient document is determined by historians by two things. Number one, the number of ancient manuscript copies that exist. And number two, the time that has elapsed between when it was originally written and the copies that we have now. So, an example of this is that the ancient manuscripts of the Greek philosopher Plato, who, of course, all of us just assume is a real person, he has about 10 copies, the oldest of which dates to about 1,200 years after it was originally written. Caesar, 10 copies. The Roman historian Tacitus has 20. And there's a big jump for Homer's Iliad, which has a massive 643 ancient manuscript copies. Now bear in mind that with that number of copies and with that amount of time elapsed between the original writings and the the copies that we have today, all of those documents are considered by historians to be reliable sources by which we can determine what happened in our history. With that in mind, how many copies, ancient manuscript copies of the New Testament do you think that we have? Well, I'll tell you. We have 24,000, 24,000 ancient manuscript copies. And, and, and many of these are separated from the originals, not by 1,200 years like Plato, but by only 25 to 50 years. The fact is, church, and it is a fact, that there are far more copies of the New Testament than any other text that we rely upon for human history today. Which is why the former director of the British Museum, Sir Frederick Kenyon, said these words, both the authenticity and general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. But even more than this, that's not where it ends. What we also have is a number of non-Christian, even non-Jewish writers who lived at the time of Jesus and also gave account of his life. So this is Flavius Josephus. Now, Flavius Josephus, he wrote a history of Judaism around AD 93, within which he made two references to the one he described as Jesus, the so-called Christ. And we'll look at one of those references later. About 20 years after Josephus, we have the Roman historians Pliny and Tacitus, who held some of the highest offices of state at the beginning of the second century, and both of whom wrote in their records about Jesus. Now what's really interesting about the writings of both of these guys is that being Romans who considered Caesar to be divine, they actually both wrote wrote negatively about Christianity, but neither of them ever questioned the existence of Jesus as a real man. And more recently, and I think this is super cool, really fascinating account. In the, in the, in the, this has only been discovered recently in, in, in the writings of the Roman historian Velius, and he describes a time that we don't even read about in the New Testament of Jesus visiting the home of a woman, woman named Elisheba and raising her stillborn baby from the dead. 
Now, this is an account, don't forget, written by a non-Jewish, non-Christian Roman historian. Isn't that fascinating? You see, church, what I'm trying to tell you is this, that the fact is there was never any debate in the ancient world about whether Jesus of Nazareth was a historical figure and Jesus' death on the cross is undisputed among historians today. Roderick Dunkley writes this. He says, In none of these various testimonies, the ones we've talked about and others, to the fact of Christ, is there any slightest hint or idea that he was not a real historical person? Which is cool. At least I think it's cool. But, but, did Jesus actually exist? It's not the most important question ever. We just had to establish that fact before we could engage in the most important question ever, which is, who do you say I am? If the historical evidence, church, leaves us in little doubt that Jesus was a real man who actually lived and breathed and walked in first century Israel, then who was he? Who was this man? Who is Jesus? Because you see, if you ask a Muslim, they would tell you that he was a prophet. If you were to ask a Hindu today, they would tell you that he was one among many holy men. If you asked a Buddhist, they say he was just a good man. And if you asked a historian, well, they would tell you that he was a Jewish rabbi or a teacher. The problem is, I'm not sure that an accurate historical study of the life and teachings of Jesus can allow us to draw any of those conclusions in isolation about who Jesus was. Many of you, I'm sure, will have heard about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis uh, is, is the author of, of many uh, philosophical works. He was, a, he was a professor at Cambridge University, but you may well know him best as the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. And C.S. Lewis noted this point, writing this in his book, Mere Christianity. He wrote this. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said, don't miss it, would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who claims to be a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell you must make your choice either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse you can shut up, shut him up as a fool you can spit at him and, and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but let us not come up with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, friends, C.S. Lewis is simply following the logic. He's making the point that, that Jesus could not have been just a good moral teacher because somebody who was both good and moral would not have attempted to lay so many people astray with claims of being God. So if Jesus was not actually God, as he said he was, C.S. Lewis says, then the only other options we have left to us is either that he was mad or bad. So which was he? If he wasn't God, if he wasn't God, as he said, then maybe he was mad. In other words, did Jesus genuinely believe that the claims he was making about himself were true, but they actually weren't true? So he was, you know, a few sandwiches sort of a picnic, so to speak. <laughs> He'd lost his mind. Well, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that Jesus led the life of a, of a lunatic? Does a madman teach with such clarity? Could somebody who didn't have full control of their own mind speak in such a way 
that their teachings would form the foundation of our own laws for hundreds of years? Would thousands of people flock to hear a madman speak and teach? And would billions still follow in his ways thousands of years after his death? Could we really conclude that Jesus was a madman? Okay, so if he wasn't God and he wasn't mad, then maybe he was bad. In other words, did Jesus know all along that the claims he was making about himself weren't true, but he decided to make them anyway, so he was lying. He was deceiving people. In other words, he was on a power trip. He was telling them that he was the Messiah so that he might gain followers and grow in power. Well, again, what, what do you think? Can we say that Jesus genuinely lived the life of a bad man? Would a bad man spend his time with the, the social outcast that everybody else in the society was ashamed to associate with? Would a bad man love and cherish and and speak value into the lives of those that everybody else ignored? Would a a bad man have rescued the woman caught in adultery from being stoned to death by the religious leaders as the law commanded that she should be? Remember the the non-Christian Jewish historian Josephus that we mentioned earlier, he, he wrote this in his writings about Jesus. He said, at that time, there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Does this sound like the legacy of a, of a bad man? So you see, if you follow the evidence, Jesus could not have been just a good moral teacher. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. There was a music journalist and he was interviewing Bono, as who you know is the lead singer of U2. And the music journalist asked Bono this question. He said, Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but the Son of God? Isn't that a bit far-fetched? Here's how Bono answered the journalist that day. He said, no, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot of things to say along the lines of the other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please just be a prophet, a prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey, and we can handle that. But don't mention the M word, because you know we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no, no, I I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps, but I actually am the Messiah. And at this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and saying, oh, my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with, says Bono, is that either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. And then Bono says this, the idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. See, that's how Bono answers the most important question ever. But what about you? Who do you say he is? Is he mad? Is he bad? Or is he 
God. And surely all of this, all of this hinges on one defining factor. Not whether Jesus lived and died, but whether Jesus died and lived. See, the Apostle Paul, he wrote it in this way. He said, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. In other words, what he's saying, friends, is that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then I'm afraid, bad news, you and I are wasting our time being here this morning. But if he has, if he was really raised from the dead, then surely everything he said about himself was true. And we're left with no other option than to order our whole lives around him. So, did he? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Well, one more time, let's consider the evidence. What do we know? What are the facts? What are the things that we know for sure? Well, one thing that we know for sure historically is that the tomb that Jesus was buried in was found empty. It was found empty. We know this historically to be true. How do we know this? We know this for a number of reasons. First, because of something that historians call the criterion of embarrassment. The criterion of embarrassment. I wonder if you'd help me out and just say to the person next to you, the criterion of embarrassment. There you go. Make you sound very, very intelligent. And also, I just wanted you to know what it feels like to be embarrassed. Okay, the criterion of embarrassment. Now, let me explain what this is. This is where a historical event is more likely to be considered to be true by historians if It would have been embarrassing or inconvenient for the people who recorded that event. So in the case of the resurrection story, if this had been an invention of the early church, then there is no way that they would have made women the first witnesses to the empty tomb. Why? Because in first century Israel, the female testimony was was worth far less than that of a man. It was considered far less reliable. Now, that's not right, but it is how it was. So if the story was fabricated, if it was made up, there is the, the, then they would have made the disciples the first people to arrive and, and witness the empty tomb, not Mary Magdalene and her companions. Doesn't make sense. And second, this one gets a little bit complicated, so I'm going to show you it on a map just here. Okay, Here is where Jesus was died and was buried. You ready? Also here is where they started telling people that he had been raised from the dead. How long was that lie going to last? See, don't forget that the people who were in charge in Jerusalem were viciously opposed to Jesus and everybody claiming he had been risen from the dead. And they could have easily squashed the whole thing before it started by simply producing a body. But they couldn't. Because Jesus' tomb was empty and a body was nowhere to be found. Okay, so I hear what you think. So maybe the body was, was stolen, right? Maybe it was stolen. Well, perhaps. But think about it. Why would the Jews or Romans steal the body? They wanted to suppress Christianity, not encourage it by providing it with an empty tomb. And what about the disciples? Well, they would have had no motive either. They were beaten and killed and persecuted because of their preaching about the resurrection. Why would they go through all of this for a deliberate lie? It doesn't make sense. And that's why the stolen body theory has been considered invalid for almost a hundred years. 
William Lane Craig uh, says it in this way, there is simply no plausible natural explanation today to account for Jesus' tomb being empty. If we deny the resurrection of Jesus, we are left with an inexplicable mystery. So we know that there was an empty tomb. We know that to be true. The other thing that we know to be true is that the early disciples claimed to have personal encounters with the resurrected Jesus after he had been crucified. The resurrection appearances. So in his letter to the church in Corinth, Paul wrote these words. He wrote that what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, don't miss this, after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Now Paul is making a point that I don't want you to miss here. What he's trying to get us to realize is that this was not a hallucination because 500 people cannot have the same hallucination at the same time. Then he goes, most of those people who saw him are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me. In other words, what Paul is saying to us is that if you don't believe that I saw him, just ask these 500 other people who also saw him. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but Tim, you, you, you can't prove the scripture with the scripture. But think about this, guys. Before this, this letter formed part of the canon of scripture as you have it in your single Bible today, it was just a letter from a guy called Paul to a church in Corinth. And this is particularly notable because it was written only 20 to 25 years after the crucifixion happened, which is what historians call a primary source, a primary source for building our foundation of history. And that's why the non-Christian New Testament scholar called Gerd Ludemann, he writes this, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. It's historically certain, at least, that Peter and the other guys claimed to have post-resurrection encounters of Jesus. They, they all claimed it, but maybe it was conspiracy. Maybe they were lying. Well, let's think about that for a minute. The same disciples who made this claim would continue to claim that Jesus had been risen from the dead and they had seen him until their dying breath and die for this claim. They would. James was executed by the sword. Thomas and Matthew were speared to death. Philip and Bartholomew were tortured and crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified. James was crucified. Thaddeus was crucified. Simon was crucified. My friends, why would they all, to a man, have continued to confess that Jesus had risen from the dead if they just made it up? It doesn't make any sense. If it was all a lie, then somebody would have given up the ghost before the end. I love how Charles Colson thinks about this. He, he was an American politician, but he was imprisoned for his part in the Watergate scandal. And he later became a Christian. And he explained it like this. I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they'd seen Jesus risen from the dead, 
Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured it if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And the final thing that we know about is the explosive growth of the early church right after Jesus was crucified. This guy here, he's called Alvaro Theus. He thinks he's Jesus. <laughs> he lives in Brazil uh, in a compound surrounded by barbed wire uh, and an electric fence in a town of his own that he has called the New Jerusalem. Now, you've never heard of him. And there's a reason, church, you've never heard of him. He's not Jesus. <laughs> he's not. He's not the Messiah that he's claiming to be. He is not the Son of God that he is claiming to be. If you've ever seen Monty Python's The Life of Brian, obviously not you, I mean the sinner that's sitting next to you, <laughs> then they would tell you that it features stars uh, a man named Brian, who you know is not the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy. Now, what this film, whilst this film is hardly historically accurate, there is one thing that this film does get right, and it's this, that people claiming to be the Messiah were a dime a dozen in first century Judea. They were all over the place. Many of them preached. Many of them, like Jesus, gather, gathered followers. And the same fate bestowed them that bestowed Jesus. They were crucified by the Romans. But here's the thing. When these so-called messiahs were crucified, they stayed dead. And so what happened? Well, their followers dispersed. They all went back home, realized they'd got it wrong. And that is why you never heard of these so-called messiahs. But let me tell you what happened when Jesus, the Messiah, was crucified. The church grew rapidly. It spread through Jerusalem, into Judea, into Sumeria, into the very ends of the earth. And all of this in spite of tremendous opposition and persecution. And still today, church, some 2,000 years later, billions of people in every continent of this globe claim to have a personal, intimate relationship with the risen Jesus. And the only event that can explain all of this is that Jesus did rise from the dead. The only thing that can make sense of all this is that Jesus was who he said he was. That he is the bread of life. That he is the resurrection and the life. That he is the gate. That he is the good shepherd. That he is the miracle maker. The way maker. The promise keeper. The light in the darkness. That he is the way, the truth and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through him. It's the only way it can make sense. And so... Church, as I finish, Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi one day, and he asks his disciples the most important question ever. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is the most important question ever because it will transform your present reality and alter your eternal destiny. We've heard about how Simon Peter answered it. 
We've heard about how C.S. Lewis and Bono answered it. I know how I answered it, but how I answer this question is not the most important question ever. The most important question ever, church, is who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? The most important question ever. wonder if you'd pray with me as our worship team join us again. Thank you, Jesus. The Messiah, the Son of the living God. Thank you, Jesus. Hey, you know, just with every eye closed in the room, it wouldn't be right for me to, to preach a message like this one and not give you the opportunity to make the response to that question that Simon Peter made that day. Maybe you've been coming to this church for a long time as a, as a family member or friend, and you've, you know there's something about it, but you never made that confession, that decision to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're a guest with us today, and the reason God brought you here is because he wanted to reveal who he is to you so that your whole life would be radically transformed. Friends, I'm going to offer you the opportunity to make a response, if that's okay. And what I'm going to ask you to do is, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise a hand. And I'm going to ask you to raise a hand if you today are wanting to say, Jesus, though I don't understand everything, something has fallen into place in my mind and heart today where I am going to say, yes, that you are my saviour, that you are the son of God, and that like those disciples, I will choose to follow you. Okay, and if you want to make that confession for the first time, okay? So let's do that. I'm going to count to three and with every eye closed, if that's you, if you're going to say, yes, you are the son of God, you're the one I'm going to follow. You make sense to me now. We'd love to pray with you. Let's just raise a hand up in the air after three. One, two, three. Raise that hand up high right now. Amazing. So good. I love that. That's absolutely fantastic. It's just fallen into place for you guys today. I can see three hands. That's really wonderful. Really, really, really wonderful. Was there anybody else? Could you just raise up a hand? Okay, those, those of you can put your hand down now. That's so fantastic. I, see, I saw four hands there. That's wonderful news. Wonderful news. Here's what we're going to do, church, because as Pastor Mark's reminded us today, we're a family, aren't we, in this church? And what we're going to do is we're going to say a prayer together. We're going to say it out loud. We're going to say it with some passion. We're going to say it in support of our friends who are saying it for the first time today. Could we do that, church? Can we do that? Let's say it loud. Let's say, Jesus, thank you that you are the Messiah the Son of the living God. Thank you that you lived. Keep it loud. Thank you that you died. Thank you that you rose again so that I can live. And Lord, I'm sorry for not living for you. Today I choose, keep it loud, to follow you. Amen. Let's worship him. Let's make some noise. Let's praise our risen Savior. He's the Son of the living God. So proud of you guys who had the courage to respond. And and I'm just going to hand over to Pastor Mark, who will follow that up from here. Bless you. Come on, let's give the Lord praise.